Hey, this is Ross Bain with Roadland Public Radio. We're here doing a special interview uh, for Game Designers Workshop with uh, Jeff Barber. Uh, Jeff Barber has uh, most well known for Blue Planet. Uh, he's also one of the uh, major, well, the creator of uh, Midnight, or one of the creators of Midnight. Author, yeah. Author, yes. Uh, and uh, he's working on a new game, uh, the Q system, which is going to be for a. A uh, game called Upwind. Um, we'll talk a little bit, and which uses really innovative card uh, mechanics instead of dice. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, uh, Jeff, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. <laughs> um, so Jeff, you've been in in working in game design for quite a while now, um, starting with uh, Pagan Publishing, actually, right? Uh, yeah, that's how I kind of got in the industry. Okay. Um, what was that like? What, so some of your first projects were Cthulhu projects, right? Yeah, Unspeakable Oath, really. Um, I I knew John Tynes through uh, a local game group, mm -hmm. and uh, he was looking for people to do art, and I kind of did art, <laughs> never, never very well, so I did some art for it, and then... You arted. Got, uh, more, yeah, got more involved, did a little writing, and... Yeah. and that's sort of how, how it all began. Okay. Uh, so sorry, we went to Pagan. Um, and then from there, well, what, what was the jump from that to Blue Planet? I mean, or was it literally just like, I did Dense People Oath. Here, let me make an entire new game. Well, I, I, Easy I, jump. I right? guess from, from a distance, that's actually kind of what happened. Um, no, we did, <laughs> we did some things. We, we developed a few scenarios through, through Pagan and... Mm -hmm. and um, there was the Walker in the Waste campaign, and oh, you worked on that. Yeah, I did. The, That's one of the campaigns that, I've really wanted to read. I've heard good things. I did about all the it. cartography just, for yeah. it, and th again, yeah, not, not great cartography, but, <laughs> but there's maps. Yeah, um, what RPG would be out there without maps? I mean, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, and then um, started in a development of uh, Delta Green, and we actually were working on an idea um, called End Times, mm -hmm. which was going to be a standalone um, Call of Cthulhu, essentially apocalyptic. Expansion. Yeah, so there's. Yeah. Cthulhu, and then Cthulhu Now, and then there was going to be this End Times, and it was going to take place on Mars, actually, after okay. Mars had been sort of colonized. Right. Um, and that got spun up a little bit, did some work on it, and then um, Pagan went one way, and I went another, and that sort of all fizzled. Um, and then at that point, I was still like, well, I, I want to keep doing this, so I, I guess I need to put out a game. <laughs> and that's where Biohazard Games and, and Blue Planet came from. Okay. Uh, so did you just pitch Biohazard and they said, yeah, oh, that's great? Or did you write it up? I mean, like, what was the... Oh, no, I, I was Biohazard. Okay, I, you I were Biohazard. Game idea, okay. And then I said, oh, I better come up with a company idea. So, yeah. <laughs> All I, right. I'd done enough. Um, I mean, the industry was very different back then. This yeah. is a long time ago. This, this was, was before Kickstarter. Yeah, <laughs> well before Kickstarter. This was... Uh, or, Mid nineties, mid nineties. Yeah. So I mean, the heyday of Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, and we, I mean, you you had uh, list serves was like the cutting edge oh, of social yeah. media in mm -hmm. terms of you know the gaming community. Um, but I, I thought, well, I'll see if I can write this game, and then mm -hmm. I'll have to create a company to go with it. But I had done enough of sort of project management and things at, at Pagan that I thought, okay, I, maybe I can do this. Sure. And it really was an, an easy way to get your toe wet in in, in business because. There weren't that many distributors. There weren't that many outlets. You knew exactly what your target audience was, um, and it was sort of an easy way to play at least right. at doing at running a business. So it wasn't. But now, you know, with, with and also I think tabletop games were more of a dominant force because I mean, while there's still video games and stuff like that, it wasn't you know as fractured as it is today, where sure. you have everything from Netflix to mobile games well, to card options, games. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was Magic Gathering, but yeah, like, but Magic the Gathering was bringing even that was pretty new. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And that was bringing people into tabletop stores. So, mm-hmm. um, so uh, you just wrote it. You did. Did you do everything for Blue, the first thing of Blue Planet? Uh, no. Well, I mean, initially, initially, I worked on it for maybe a year, year and a half, and uh, I, I came back from a trip and had hundreds of emails that I almost just deleted entirely. <laughs> In fact, I deleted about the first half of them because most of it seemed like junk. And then I just randomly opened one and there was a guy named Greg Benage yeah. who eventually became my partner um, and is really probably the reason the game was as successful as it was because he came with a lot of great ideas and a lot of motivation and some money, which helped a lot too. <laughs> yeah. Again, before Kickstarter. Yeah. So you actually had to put up money up front. And uh, this is also before print-on-demand too. Yep. So you had to do your yep. own runs. It was all, you had to, we had to find printers and run through the whole the gamut of production on that end and then distribution and shipping and manage that all uh, out of our wow. own apartments. And um, so yeah, you've listened to actually some of our episodes of Game Designers Workshop. Have, so yeah. uh, listening to how Caleb and I are working on our games and like your struggles with Blue Planet, uh, like what, what what strikes you is the most uh, different or the similar? I mean, like, uh, well, most most different what strikes me is how unbelievably organized he is about his approach. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I thought I knew what I was kind of doing. At least I thought I knew what I was getting into. Yeah. Um, and I, I think logistically, I I did, but in just in terms of the magnitude of work, the yeah. magnitude of effort that was required to to make it happen, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really. Have a, an, an idea? <laughs> how how big was the first edition of uh, uh, three hundred fifty pages? Oh wow, that yeah, is it's a, it's a big book. It's a lot of words. Um, we we worked on the assumption that um, it we weren't going to get to do a second book. Yeah, so we wanted to get everything, <laughs> everything in the first, in and it's maybe ninety pages of rules or rules related things, right. and then the rest of it is essentially setting. So it's a, a, we wanted people to be able to play Blue Planet for as long as they wanted. Mm-hmm. It's just a single book. Okay. Uh, so what is, so uh, we've been talking about it, but we haven't talked uh, what it is, what, it, it, what, it, what it's really about. Uh, what is Blue Planet about? Um, well, it's a, a near future science fiction. Right. Um, we really tried to keep it sort of hard science fiction. Right. Uh, it follows the development of Earth's first extrasolar colony world. They find it through a wormhole, kind of by accident. Um, there's, we decide that there's a lot of ecological problems going on on Earth, so they start a colony effort. The ecological problems on Earth go worse, right? Um, which leaves essentially abandons the colony project for about well, almost 100 years, well, 50 or 60 years anyway. Right. Um, when they finally recontact it, they discover that the original colonists have actually thrived. They've spread out across this water world, right, um, and have essentially become natives, um, at least culturally. Um, and there's a few curious scientists there for a little while until they discover something called longevity or longevity matrix xenosilicate, which is a, um, a MacGuffin essentially <laughs> that drives a, a sort of a classic, um, 1840s gold rush, right. Um, where they, the ubiquitous evil corporations plus the government, plus the, Native everybody people, wants, this. everybody wants in either to protect the strange and wondrous ecology of this of this new planet or to get their piece of the long john. And we intentionally, and I'll, and I'll, I swear across my fingers, <laughs> this is long before Firefly ever existed. Right. We, we give it a very um, kind of Wild West air. Right? Right. There's, there's um, marshals enforcing the peace. Um, there's a lot of sort of frontier towns. There's even a, a, an island called Kansas, and they raise cattle <laughs> there. I mean, it's, it, it definitely has that 
Well, I mean, you you kind of need something like that because if you make it too alien, no one's going to be able. Well, to that was part of the, part of the idea. There's a, almost a 75 year dark age in terms yeah. of technological development, so that it could be far enough in the future for the really kind of cool bits of science fiction to be present. Right. But we didn't want it to be. We didn't want. We intentionally didn't want AI. We intentionally didn't want nanotechnology yet. Um, you didn't want to go full cyberpunk, right? Right. And then, of course, there's a meta thing happening on the colony world that people are just starting to find out about when the game, the default timing of the game takes place. Mm-hmm. And this is that it was um, previously visited by um, a, a, this um, alien race that terraformed it. And they're just starting to discover that uh, this has happened yeah. a very long time in the past and that this xenosilicate they're harvesting is related to that original terraforming. Okay. So you have a lot of going on, but you don't establish like people can establish what the alien race is going to be doing or whatever for their own. Um, they can within the scope of Poseidon. Some of our plans for future books uh, involved developing that out mm-hmm. until eventually um, there were big reveals that would lead right. to um, a, a meta plot. Yeah, a potentially yeah. broader game that people might. Um, be drawn to if they're into space opera. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so this was really well received. Uh, it was much much better than we ever hoped. <laughs> much more than we ever expected. I, I I honestly thought if I could sell a thousand copies, I would be psyched because several people had told me that that would be a, a nice goal. Yeah. Um, we blew through. Um, I think our initial print run of two thousand copies. We as Biohazard sold. I don't know now. It's a long time ago, but maybe five or six thousand copies. Again, doesn't sound like that much. Right. For tabletop games, even today, that's pretty sure. good. Yeah, right. I guess so. Yeah, um, I mean, you can look at Evil Hat; and they they have sales numbers, and they you can see like that's I wouldn't say Dresden file numbers, but that's really good. So, yeah. and then Fantasy Flight, um, we kind of built a relationship with them, and and they wanted to license it. And mm-hmm. in fact, um, my we decided my partner would go and and sort of develop the line for them, and they they're responsible for um, all the sales that have come since, and and and. Uh, or, or I guess should have, should have said the majority of the sales, and that was um, really good for the line. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they they put it out to you know thousands of more people. Um, so when you're creating the game, like um, as you said, it's it's very focused on the, the uh, fluff and the or the the setting material. Uh, there's only like 90 pages of rules. Like, how long did you play test those rules? Like, how what was the development process for that? Because again, like as you mentioned, you know, like Caleb's very organized and he's very much focused on the mechanics. Right, right. Well, there's been there were two versions actually. Yeah. The first edition, I wrote the mechanics, and it was. At the time, I was a big fan of um, of percentile systems, and I know that at times those have fallen out of favor. Yeah, but I still like them, um, and uh, it was very simple. Mm-hmm. It didn't take very long to work the kinks out because there just wasn't much to kink. Right. Um, it was all based on on percentage chances and modifications of those um, in a very traditional sense. I was sure, not sure. very creative or innovative in terms of the mechanics, um, and they were functional. They didn't. I don't think they drew anybody to the game. Right. In fact, I think it was, it was not a selling point. The weakest part of the game, and I think a lot of people just stripped the setting out and ran it with whatever. Wasn't there a GURPS conversion to. guide? I think. There was a GURPS conversion. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know a lot of fans worked on conversions to different systems. Yeah. You're not like you didn't pull a Palladium. They'll be like, no converting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> well, when we went to um, when we licensed to Fantasy Flight, one of the things they wanted was something new about the line that would attract new customers. Right. And they wanted us initially to push the timeline ahead, but we had constructed the timeline specifically to be the most interesting point in the colonization effort. Yeah. When the tensions were highest and conflict was it most... It could go either. Right. Anyway, number that one. was the tipping point. We wanted the right. game to, to be set there. Um, so we kind of balked at, at moving the timeline forward. Sure. But they said, okay, how about new mechanics? Which gave us a chance to actually make 
much better mechanics, or I should say, <laughs> to give my partner Greg um, the chance to make much better mechanics. Uh, and and even when I run Blue Planet now, I still use the second edition mechanics. I think they're I think they're a lot better. I think they're just simpler. Maybe not quite as intuitive because they're not percentile, but once you figure them out, it's it's okay. easy to play. Okay. Cool. Um, and so, working with uh, how many supplements did you put out before you uh, Fantasy Flight? We put out two. Put out two. Um, uh, uh, Archipelago, which was uh, um, uh, more setting for a game that was already um, very, very setting rich. And that still stands kind of as my favorite book. I don't know why. Maybe it was just, I, I just liked that time in the line. Things were still interesting and exciting. And, mm-hmm. or, 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 or I don't know. It, just, it was just a nice book. It's a pretty book. Um, and then we put out um, like a DM's, re- a Game Master's resource. The, the, got a lot of demand for a game screen, actually. Oh, yeah. surprised us. You always that. have to have a game screen, it seems like. But we got a guy to do some really cool um, yeah. rendered sort of like aerial photographs of, of the planet. Oh, nice. Um, and so we made that the screen. It was really cool. And then there was a, a book of like adventure seeds that came with it. Okay. Um, and then Fantasy Flight picked it up just about that time, and they put out another... Six or eight books, I guess. Yeah. Um, some of which I had more or less to do with. Um, the last book that they put out, um, Ancient Echoes, was the the Uplifted Cetaceans character book. Mm-hmm. Um, and funny enough, the woman that is now my wife, my girlfriend at the time, um, uh, also a creative writer, English yeah. major, that kind of thing, um, was looking for a summer project, and she wrote most of that book. <laughs> um, so she wrote it, I edited it, and, and um, we put it out through Fantasy Fight. And that was the last book that... that was new material essentially. Mm-hmm. Since that time, um, we've had a license agreement with um, well, first Red Brick, and then they turned into FASA, and mm-hmm. now they're capricious. And they're they've done some. They did a third edition, which they've since sort of backed off of the rules. They basically a simplified version of the second edition rules, and um, they did some adventures and, and some basic supplemental material. Um, but that's what that's sort of the. The company that's now shepherding it on on drive through. Okay, if people want to find it there. Yeah. So, um, and so yeah. So you can get all the things on PDF, and you can you can find out all about it. Uh, you can probably find the used books somewhere on Amazon or something. Oh yeah, like they're. I still stumble into them at used bookstores with the gaming <laughs> sections. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you you game books never die. They just go to old <laughs> passed on to yeah, younger used bookshelves. Yeah. People without kids. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so you, that you kind of left it. It sounded like you kind of you you ended it because other people took it over, and you kind of yeah. Well, the reason were there creative reasons too, or uh, a little bit. I I had kind of hadn't really planned on like I said more than that right. first book, and so when it you know we had pipe dreams of supplements, but it just never really seemed real. Um, but by the time we actually got to the point that Fantasy Flight took it over, I was pretty tired. Mm-hmm. It's hard to have a, a day job, sure, and then try and run a. You know, a, a game company. A game company on the side. How many how many years uh, altogether were you working on Blue Planet? Um, before it was actually released, yeah. most of four, four years. Yeah, to from start to release. From yeah, conception. Like oh, I'm going to do this until yeah. the time we were at Gen Con selling the book was about okay. four years. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and then another couple of years for the yeah whole, for the supplements and then and yeah just keeping the line going. So almost a decade of. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. I guess. So. <laughs> I could see why somebody would get burned out. Yeah. And then I just I, I wanted to change my day job, and and yeah. uh, it had been hard on relationships and that kind of thing. And sure. so I thought, you know, it's time for a little change. And with my partner running the running the development, mm-hmm. actually employee of Fantasy Flight now, it, it was easy to do. Sure. So I stepped away and hadn't done any game development for 
quite a while after that until the opportunity to work on Midnight came up. Yeah, so Midnight. Uh, so how did that come about? Um, uh, we're at uh, Gen Con, actually, sitting at a bar, <laughs> which I think probably most game... There's a lot of game, yeah, a lot of deals are started start like that. <laughs> a lot of game lines have been started in bars. And, and I think it was... Uh, do you remember when um, Watsy put out a call for settings? And was they, that that or uh, Pi? Oh yeah, no, that was, that's what led to Eberron, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. It was the contest essentially that led to. <laughs> I submitted to, to that. Did you? Yeah. Yes. Um, I <sighs> guess Fantasy Flight. They missed their chance. <laughs> <laughs> Fantasy Flight was going to do. It was weird. They they submitted a couple too. Fantasy Flight. Fantasy Flight as a company submitted a couple. Or at least that was sort of how it. I don't know if they officially as a company, right. but or that was sort of people how they with came the company. Yeah. Um, I think Dawn Forge might have been one of those. Okay. Um, and then. I think that they thought they were going to submit Midnight, but then they didn't. They decided to do it in-house. And Greg yeah. Benage, my partner from Biohazard, had come up with this concept and was promoting it. And they'd already put out like a flyer. And he showed me the flyer. And it was like a three-page treatment of, of what the setting was going to look like, an advertisement treatment. And I had some art from some of the artists they, they'd gotten. And I, at the time, um, I, I'm a school teacher, and at the time... Um, the school, the private school I was teaching at had just closed uh, unexpectedly right after graduation. No warning. Yeah, no warning. <laughs> so, you know, it's really tough to get a teaching gig when yeah. when it's May. Yeah. Um, and so I was looking for some freelance work to tide me over. And I said, oh, I'll give this a shot if you're looking for writers. And he said, sure. Um, and in fact, I said, I'll make you a deal. Because he kind of pushed it on me at first. And I was like, I-, I don't know if I can do this. I didn't have a lot of confidence. Sure. I could write a fantasy game. And I, I told him... Um, well, let me, give me a week. I'll, mm-hmm. If I can, if I can write a certain word count in that week, then I know I can like feed myself off that word count. And if you yeah. like it, then I'll go ahead and do it. So I just wrote a bunch of kind of different topics that I was inspired by this flyer that he showed me. And he said, "Yeah, this looks good. Why don't you keep going?" So I, I kept going, and and I wrote the most of, most of the setting um, and some of the character stuff for the for the um, first core book, and then mm-hmm. I wrote the campaign uh, Crown of Shadow. Uh, and then eventually, when they did a second edition, I, they needed more word counts, so I did another, I don't know, five or 10,000 words for that. But okay. That was really my only contribution. The game went on for many, many supplements. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have much to do with any of those. Um, but it was really fun. I mean, I, I like dark fantasy, and it was a chance to make it as dark as I possibly could. Yeah, that's true. That is kind of the, uh, the premise of that game. Um, did you do a lot of playtesting along with that? Or did they, um, was I did. It, I did um, not playtesting because I wasn't really managing the rule set. Okay. But I did um, the playtesting because it's a great way to inspire um, setting. Right. I'm I'm never as creative as when I'm actually in the midst of running a game uh, because the ideas are kind of forced on you by your players. Yeah. So while I was writing it, I was actually running the campaign that became Crown of Shadows. Okay. Um, were there times when you were running the game? Did you provide your feedback to the guy? Who, uh, who worked on the game mechanics? Or um, uh, I mean, it's a D20 game. I, mean, I think play- Will Heinmark worked on some of it. I okay. think Greg did a lot of the mechanics conversion himself. Greg, okay. But it's D20, so there yeah. wasn't... Really what we did was we... we Changing the, the magic rules a little bit. Yeah, and that's what I was wanting. Uh, um, interesting because I know they have like a channeling mechanic or yeah, something. There's yeah, there's no wizards. Magic is yeah. gone from the setting, and at least traditionally. Um, right. The traditional sort of. It's like forms a skill that you. you. And um, you have to be able to inherently channel magic before you can use it. Right. 
Um, and uh, to be honest, it's been long enough now since I've run it that I can't quite remember how the mechanic worked. But well, yeah, my contributions mechanically were primarily the characters because we we redid a lot of the the rote races, right? And so they needed to be tweaked to fit the the D twenty ethos paradigm, yeah. Um, because yeah, I, I was always wondering about like like how, um, especially working as a team, you know. Like how the guy writing on setting would give feedback to the person working on the rules, and like how that, what kind of feedback loop there is for that sort of thing. We didn't really have um, a loop so much. Greg and I had worked together really closely um, on Blue Planet, of course, right, and, and had a, a really um, good working relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would send him stuff, and most of the time he'd say, "Great, keep going." Um, <laughs> the mechanic stuff had always been sort of his forte uh, in our relationship, and so I would send him things and he go, well, I'll just change this and this and this mm-hmm. and now keep going. Um, and I just say, okay. <laughs> um, a lot of it was just defined by D 20, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you make a new race, the, the bonuses and penalties you can, you can give them and be in keeping with the power levels of previous races are, are pretty much spelled out. Right. So that kind of thing. Didn't I mean, yeah, a lot, a lot of them make problems or something. Yeah. It yeah. didn't really require much innovative design. Okay. Um, because yeah, the, Midnight is one I've I've read and I've I've read parts of and I've heard a lot of good things, but I've not played it myself. Uh, and I've always wondered about like how that channeling mechanic worked in gameplay. It sounds like I mean it, it's a pretty solid. It it seemed to work okay. Um, yeah. In the in the in the playing I did as much as you know D twenty works. It, yeah. It worked. Um, <laughs> and, I mean that, I don't mean to sound like like it did. It didn't. <laughs> I played a lot of D twenty games. We, um, I think everyone has. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it worked like D twenty is what yeah. I, what I really should be saying. Um, I think what made it more interesting for me, and I've always been more of a setting person than a mechanics person yeah. anyway, is that it's illegal to use magic in in the upwind setting. Um, the evil powers that have taken oh, over this. I'm sorry, <laughs> getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I've been spending too much time in my current project uh, in the midnight setting. Um, and so the players use very little of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't become as big a part of the um, balancing the balancing the game because you, the, the balance is in you get hunted down and, and killed if you're if you're using magic, um, which was what appealed to me about um, the, the difference between magic in a typical um, D20 setting and in, yeah. in midnight. Yeah, I mean that's been like a central problem. I think design problem of the D20. Uh, rule set is the balancing spellcasters versus non-spellcasters and games have tried different approaches but certainly like making it a skill with various limitations and as a uh, setting quirk in that you know uh, it, it can't be used freely as in the standard evening game yeah, so and, a good solution and part of the backstory is that this evil force is drawing magic out of the world in an attempt to kind of regain his divinity and so uh, there are places where there just isn't any left, or not much. Right. So there's actually mechanics where as you move through these regions, you're, you become more or less powerful depending upon what's available. Okay. Which also affected the mechanics, but then also affected how it gets used in the storytelling. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so that was well-received as well, too. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think, yeah. I think we had an any. Yeah. Um, uh, again, it was unexpected. I, I, I was doing it because it was it was fun yeah but it was also a a job at the time um and i'll give all the credit to to greg i mean the basic tenants were laid out in that in that initial brochure yeah and uh i think that's where the 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 um appeal of the game is is Mm -hmm. in the original concept okay 
Um, so, you know, after your work on, on Midnight, uh, you kind of went back to teaching. Uh, yeah. 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 And, uh, but then recently, well, I mean, in the last few years, you picked up, you got the, the itch to design games yeah. again. I mean, I never stopped gaming. Um, uh, but I did stop writing games yeah. um, with any sense of, of publishing them. Right. Um, but then, kick, you know, the, the, the sort of the last, you know, five or six years has been sort of a, a renaissance, I think, in tabletop games because of Kickstarter and other crowdfunding mechanisms and also social media, uh, businesses like Drive Through RPG. And yeah, it took like out that. a lot of the impediments that existed yeah. before, for sure. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of interesting games. And so you, you started working again. Uh, what for the before we get well, into I, what I the key system is? I think yeah. that's being um, yeah. that's giving it more credit. Than <laughs> it really, I, I accidentally stumbled into um, maybe putting out another game. Okay, uh, yeah, um, I, it was never an intention, and I think I was telling you earlier it was um, sort of a sloppy or happy accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, uh, well, tell us about like how before we get into what it is. Oh, okay, like, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, how did how did what your your new project? How did you start working on it? Um, this was not this is not a freelance thing. This is not, no, yeah, it would be another is, biohazard games thing. Yeah. If, it, if it ever sees the light of day, it right. would be a biohazard games thing. Um, I just had this idea one day. Um, uh, honestly, um, I lived in Hawaii for a few years. I was teaching at a school there, and um, you think weird things when you live on an island out in the middle of the ocean. And uh, I, I started. I remember one day. Um, looking out from this hilltop and seeing the ocean, but then seeing, realizing how tiny I was in this great sea right. of, of, of uh, around me. Um, but I couldn't really see the water. It was just clouds. Um, and you're pretty it, high up. Yeah. And it felt like this was just an Island floating in the sky and I couldn't get that image out of my head for a while. And then, um, you know, with the, the various tropes of, um, various anime stories and there's even some other games that kind of deal with this floating Island mm-hmm. setting, I just thought, oh, that'd be kind of a cool place to, to play some games. And I just kept um, toying with the idea, and it started to get some legs in my imagination. Um, and I wrote up a kind of a short, like, 5K word treatment of the setting, and then um, ran it in with some friends, and then ran it again and again, and developed some more. And the idea just kind of hung there and didn't really die. Um, and for the past few years, it's been occasionally play-tested, just... Right. Um, messing around with the, the ideas, adding to it. Okay. And then I stumbled into an idea for a, a, separately, without any idea of attaching it to Upwind, this idea of, um, of a different kind of um, game mechanic using using playing cards. And kind of stuck the two together, and they seemed to come together really well. And and uh, at that point, it seemed like, well, there, there's more to this than just a, a, a throwaway idea. Let's see what I can do with it. And started working more earnestly on it. Um yeah, and just uh, so everyone knows, like this, the system you call it the Q system, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we've actually play tested it at RPPR, Caleb I and uh, Tom and Aaron, and uh, we 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 tried it out, and it was, it, I thought it worked really well. And for someone who says, you know, I'm a setting guy, not a, not a mechanics guy, these are really, I think, very impressive mechanics. Well, uh, every squirrel finds a nut sometimes. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I would say it was kind of accidental. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, tell us, can you give us a little brief uh, overview of what the Q system? Uh, sure. What 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 makes it unique aside from using playing cards? Well, Q, stand, Q stands for quantum. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I played some games like um, uh, the best example and the one that the first one I played like this was uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, mm-hmm. um, where they use this stakes mechanic to yeah. sort of disc- define outcomes. You establish the stakes of the yeah. conflict yeah. before you do it. And um, some other games, um, and, and I may be missing the title, so forgive me if I'm wrong about this. But with great power. 
I think uses some, I think des- some descriptive gonna, yeah. um, attributes, uh, sort of text-based descriptive attributes, a lot like um, any of the fate systems with uh, mm-hmm. aspects, right? Um, and so those two things I really liked, and uh, I thought I, um, if I put them together the right way, I could use it to tell stories in, in a more quantum way rather than in the incremental way of a, a yeah. traditional move-by-move um, move initiative-based role-playing encounter. Um, and so the idea behind it was that you would set stakes, stakes one set of stakes, stake, sorry, one set of stakes for the player, one set of stakes for the moderator, and um, you would sort of um, cooperatively negotiate these to tell an interesting story. And if the player won, the story would go one way, and if the right. moderator won, the story would go the other way. Um, and it it fit the sort of light, um, pulpy, uh, sort of anime esque feeling that this upwind game was developing and so i put them together and it seemed sort of an an intentional marriage um one of the things that i think bonds it to the playing card mechanic is that with the four suits it fit really well with the four elemental cardinal cardinal elements Mm -hmm. that are central to the well they're not the like standard elements i mean yeah but they still i mean they're just thinly mapped over right yeah uh, cause you, there's like a, uh, there's obviously wind, there's arc, wind, arc, which essentially is fire, um, rain, which is water, yeah, yeah. um, electricity, yeah, yeah. Yeah. rain, which is water and ore, which would be, or that's it. Yeah. yeah. That so I, I gave them different terms, but instead of in, yeah. in, in, in essence, the idea of the, the cardinal elements is the same, Yeah, but it, it married nicely with the, the four suits in a card deck. And, and so that was part of the reason I think that the, those new mechanics fit so well with this, the setting idea. Um, so yeah, we like I said we mentioned play test game. It worked really well, um, and uh, I, I was it, it was interesting to me because you 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 have you make, get a lot of use out of every element of the of the deck. Like uh, yeah, like you said, the four suits, um, all the face cards have certain values. Uh, like the critical mechanic, uh, success mechanic is called crowning, uh, which is very interesting. Even the jokers are used. Um, I feel. I mean, you you get a lot of like. I have, I can't think of a game that gets so much game uh, mechanic usage out of such a little like. Well, yeah, you know, it didn't didn't originally. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it uh, has come through through so, the slow development of yeah. trying different things. But honestly, because of the structure of a card deck, all those things already existing there. The suits, the numbers yeah. of cards, the even the colors, those sorts of things. Um, they they inspire a lot of ideas um unlike a dice which just kind of sits there and doesn't contribute <laughs> a, a variety of, of right. measures the uh, cards inspire a lot of that um so yeah that that, that yeah that's so that your your process uh can we talk about, about that for a little bit you you said your process is kind of slow and incremental or like how, how did you approach design i mean you said this is kind of a casual like Sort of like I have this idea and it can't, I can't get it out of my head, so I need to write it up. Is it, would that be kind of accurate? That's fair. You, yeah. know, you write down one part of it, and then then maybe you go on to something else, and then you stew on an idea for a little while, and then you get a little bit of inspiration, and you okay. write something more. That it, I'm not usually like that. I'm usually pretty much okay. I've got to write this many words every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I sit down and do it. Um, I can't really do that with mechanics. So a lot of it would be you know driving home from work and you right. get this idea. Oh, hey, maybe I should try that. Mm-hmm. Um, or you play test it with somebody and someone makes a suggestion and, and you try that. So the, the current form of the Q mechanics is certainly uh, the result of just lots of incremental aha moments where I thought, oh, this might work better. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole cash system came about that way. Okay. Um, 
so like how long did it, overall did it take you to get to a point where you could show it to other people? Uh, well, probably a number of years, four or five years, but that okay. sounds like a long time <laughs> when really I, I would work on it for you know a, a weekend, right, and then not again for six months, right. Uh, so it, you know, it was very casual. Yeah, yeah. So you you didn't rush your muse then. So. No, <laughs> no. When I when I about well, getting close to about a year ago, when I decided to actually, I can't get rid of this thing. It's following me around. It's stuck in my right. head. People keep telling me to publish it. When I decided I'm going to see if I can um, mm-hmm. finish out the setting and 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 really refine the mechanics. Um, that's been a lot more deliberate effort, and there's been a lot of progress in that time, and that's been about eight months so far. I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. You've shown me some of your game design documents uh, with like the, a lot. There's a lot of really impressive stuff about the settings. Uh, I mean, the basic. Well, yeah, well, well, let's talk about the setting for a little bit, because like as you said, the idea it came about as like islands in the sky um, and airships in the four elements. Right, uh, right. But there's a lot more to it. So yeah. The, um, so I. Uh, I wanted to do something that was very different from Blue Planet and that mm-hmm. was very different from um, from Midnight, mm-hmm. uh, um, kind of a triangle of game settings, I guess. Um, and <laughs> the you know, hard science fiction and then very traditional, though dark fantasy. Right. Um, it didn't leave a lot of room for something else. Um, and, I, and I did go through an anime phase. I'm a huge Studio Ghibli fan, mm. um, um, especially um, Nausicaa, Warriors mm-hmm. of the Wind, or... Uh, Valley of the Wind. Valley of the Wind. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Um, and Princess Mononoke. Those, those oh, kind yeah. of things. The adventure um, ones. Yeah. Yeah. And and as the um, upwind ideas started to percolate in my head, I was going through a, a phase where I was watching a lot of that, and so all of the imagery in my imagination looked like a Ghibli movie. Yeah. Um, and you know he's uh, Miyazaki's big into flying. Uh, Machines of kind of fantastic yeah. design and that kind of thing, and and then that moment when I was um, standing on that island and looking out over the the sea of clouds, um, I just thought it'd be neat to create a world that wasn't Earth, that wasn't um, an identifiable science fiction place like Mars or, or another planet, but something completely different, not an alternate version of our planet, but just an alternate version of reality, where for some reason that. You know, maybe we're explaining, maybe we're not. The world is made up of floating islands, um, and um, the, peop- the people that live there maybe aren't even human. Um, a close read of the setting will will show that the word "human" never gets used. That's true. Um, um, and o- other identifying features of, of humanity. I mean, there are people, and you know, they they are are humanoid in terms right. of form and, and emotional motivation and drives and all, but. There's a there's a deliberate attempt to make it feel like an an otherly an otherly world, right? Um, and in that, we decided I, I decided to abjectly break some some natural laws or change the natural laws. The setting doesn't have a sun; it doesn't have stars. It just kind of goes on, maybe. Yeah. Um, that, there, the geography of it is extremely interesting to me because it's not only like it seems to be infinite in the the horizontal. Uh, but you, in, it, you, the major regions are vertical. Like, right. There's the there's, bright. There's, there's light. The yeah. light, capital L, yeah. and the dark, capital D. Yeah. Um, light is upwind. Dark is downwind. Um, the the light doesn't have a, a specific source. It's just kind of a sourceless glow. It's warm. It it helps you grow plants, um, um, but it isn't otherwise. Um, 
uh, a sun as we know it. The dark is caused by the infinity of islands and haze and rain and clouds and fog mm-hmm. that exist. And so the farther away, the farther downwind you go, the farther down you go, uh, the darker it becomes until it gets cold and dank and then eventually frozen. Um, the inhabitants of the kingdoms of the light are called the kin. The um, well, That's the player character types. Those are the player character types. Um, the uh, game focuses, unlike a lot of the other games I've written, um, Game material written. There's a very focused sort of campaign concept, mm-hmm. and that is, you are members of the Guild of Explorer Knights. You are um, young prodigies in in various ways that are recruited by the guild to um, undergo very rigorous training to um, not only become very skilled in in areas of scholarship and engineering um, and skymanship, um, but also in, in martial abilities. Um, but you also get trained in your magical prowess, uh, in your potential, it's called. Every inhabitant of, of Upwind has potential at some level. Those with the most and those with the best control of it are recruited into the guild. So even the lowliest um, NPC is going to have a little bit of magic at their dis- disposal. Um, but the PCs are, are um, overpowered compared to all of right. the, the, the run-of-the-mill inhabitant. Uh, and that comes across also in the game mechanics too, because one of the things I I found really interesting about the system uh, is that the Q uh, system resolves instead of the typical game where you resolve a single task or action with a uh, randomization like a die roll or whatever. Uh, the Q system resolves things through an entire encounter with one play of the cards, GM versus player. Right. And so the the name quantum. Yeah. yeah, Quantum. Um, and so because of this pacing thing, like characters, like it's not like, do you defeat the monster? Do you hit the monster for X amount of damage? Do you defeat the monster? And if so, how, you know, what are the consequences of you defeating this monster? Uh, do you tame it and make it your buddy or do you, or does it damage the ship and your guy, you guys are stranded and now you have new problems to deal with. And you have new problems. Yeah. And it might, maybe this is a good time to talk sort of about the basic mechanics. So Mm -hmm. then uh, viewed in context, yeah. So, so you have hands of cards, yeah. And, and these cards essentially represent your the points that you have to bid for for the outcome that you want, right? And so, um, like any game, the game master is describing things, and the players are are telling you stuff and taking actions, and and when you get to a point in what would otherwise be considered an encounter. Um, and you think it would be interesting if there's a chance of failure or that the possible directions the game could go merit an actual play, um, you'll negotiate with the player or players involved, because you can have multiple players involved in a play, um, for the outcomes that they want. Um, uh, and usually the, 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 we encourage people to, to go beyond just success or failure. Yeah, I kill the monster, um, you know, I, I steer the ship, whatever. But to create real consequences that not only might have immediate ramifications, but might affect the players later in the, in the session might affect the players later in a campaign, um, can really change not just the characters themselves, but the options they have available to them and the setting around them. Um, and you, you do the same thing for a, a stakes for the, for the game master. You, you negotiate something that would be interesting for the opposition to do or to have or a, an additional threat that gets added to, the, to what the players are facing. Um, and then you make a bid. Um, you play cards based on the stats for your character. Um, and um, whoever wins that bid wins, wins the stakes. And the story automatically follows that 
that narrative thread. Right. Um, and so an encounter that in an in a incremental game might take 45 minutes to play through, rolling initiative and swinging swords, you're done in less than five minutes of negotiation and, and bidding. Uh, so the game tells, tells the stories very, very quickly. Yes. Uh, and this was something we... Uh, during the playtest I discovered is like you get through a lot of story very quickly so uh, it's actually it does take some adjusting from a normal game master pacing level uh, I think I mentioned like you could do an entire campaign like if you were doing this as a pulp adventure thing like a version of Master 9 or Lothotep, uh you could do that instead of 20 sessions in like 4 to 6 sessions or something like that uh, which again I find it, it, it's amazing <laughs> yeah it's very different it's yeah. a different experience and it's funny um, I've been talking with a lot of people about that have been playing it um, talking about that experience um, it is a storytelling game it's yeah. an indie style storytelling game. And I don't want anybody to think it's it's a, a hefty. It's it's going to be a, a fairly short game, a very self contained game. It's not going to be a, you know a Blue Planet scope um, yeah. simulation. Not a three hundred fifty page. Yeah, Blue Planet was to be a, a science fiction simulation. Yeah, uh, Upwind is is a a lightish, interesting novel setting slash mechanic set um, that is meant to probably be in keeping with like Temple of Doe. Yeah. Or, or even uh, something like Dogs in the Vineyard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that it that comes across in play is there is a very strong meta element because you're ne- you're negotiating what's going to happen for, with the storyline. You're talking with the players as you're playing about what's coming up. Yeah. Right. And so there's a a, um, a very different sense of of in and out of the immersion. So you're one moment you're in character talking to NPCs or each other. Then the next moment, you're sort of helping the GM create the story that you want to tell. So it, it doesn't fall into um, the, the simulationist end at all. It's very right. very story, very meta in that sense. Yeah. Um, and it, it, there's another one, uh, Our Last Best Hope, uh, which have you, have you heard of I that? Um, heard of, I've heard of it. I haven't played yeah, it. Yeah, it, it kind of gets in the sense that it's a very metagame where you're trying to like it, – it tries to simulate um, a specific type of movie, i.e. Armageddon or uh, like we have to save the world from this existential threat. And mm-hmm. they have game mechanics that encourage that kind of thinking as well. Um, but that that's definitely very uh, – it, it's a – I think – Indie storytelling games like oh that's nothing new but like some RPGers are gonna be like well, you know it's gonna be uh, a mind blowing experience for some people when they get to play it uh, and I look forward to find getting hearing more of these reactions from it so yeah it has been interesting um, I have a few guys that I game with who came into role playing tabletop role playing mm-hmm. um, with my game group yeah and so the only experiences they've had are the games we've played together and the first time they played upwind it was kind of like that yeah they they had no concept of of games that involve meta elements like that and they really they really seem to enjoy it yeah um so what kind of challenges did you have uh going through the design process where i mean like were there any like after even though you've designed you know blue planet and midnight and all this and worked on blue or midnight um were there any new challenges that you had to stop and like really set you back or um I'm still in that process. So, <laughs> well, so, yeah, okay. so the answer is yes. <laughs> um, but it, I can't really look back at it and say, yeah. oh, these are the things because yeah, yeah. those things are still going on. Right. Um, there have been a couple times where I thought the mechanic, the idea for the mechanics was dead. Yeah. Like it just wasn't going to hit a brick wall. Well, it wasn't so much a brick wall as I'm like, is this doing what it's doing better than Dicewood? Right. Or is this doing better than some other entirely different mechanic using um, 
I don't know, flipping coins or something right. would, would be. Um, but then whatever that issue was kind of got solved. Okay. For example, the um, one that seemed an impediment for a long time, and the fix was totally natural. I didn't, saw it, didn't know why we didn't see it. It was in the original version. Um, so like, um, like games like Fate, you, you actually write your stats for your character as descriptive phrases. Right. You're not picking them from a list. You say, I want to be a, an uncanny swordsman, so you're going to create a... a a skill for your character called maybe best swordsman in the guild. Right. Um, and then you you can assign values from one to three to that, and that's the number of cards you can play. Well, when you were first playing it, you would pick any three cards out of your hand and play them. But what it turned out to be was that everybody was playing their very best cards, and so it really just came down to you know, um, everyone playing essentially tens, the highest numerical value we right. had in the system. And it was only being broken by this mechanic you mentioned earlier, the crowning. And it wasn't very interesting. Um, and then we just realized, well, if we, if we require that they match a suit. So when you take your, your skill, best swordsman in the guild, and you have to match it to spades, that means you can only play spades out of your hand, which means now you're not going to be playing tens every time. Right. And if you don't have spades, you have and to use another skill. if you don't have spades, you've got to use a different skill, which yeah. is another fun and intentional like feature of, of the metagame, is that you have to drive the story in the directions that your hand allows you to, because you can't use things that you don't have the cards for. Right. Yeah. Uh, unless you use one of the the um, there are mechanics like caching and things that will give you uh, uh, additional. You bonuses. still have to have the base cards. Okay. You can get additional cards if your hand is not very strong. Yeah, you can you can cash and crack. Okay, yeah, uh, interesting. Um, so, what kind of lesson after designing this for other for P, for our listeners out there who are designing games? What kind of uh, advice would you give them for designing a game with these kind of very explicit kind of meta? Uh, I mean, since you've worked on more traditional games like Blue Planet and Midnight versus this, what has been uh, different about the... I've got to be honest. I'm, I'm probably not a great uh, <laughs> source for advice on that yeah. because I kind of came late to the whole meta and indie right. game scene um, as a player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I love those games. And, and the more I, I play them, the more I like them. Um, so I, I certainly don't feel like I'm qualified to, to provide advice about okay. it. I, still, well, you, I stumbled okay. into these, this idea, and um, I, I can't say that I set out to create this experience and this is right. how I'm doing it. I'd love to be able to, to, to do that. I really admire the people that say, I want the game to feel like this, okay. and then they create that. Well, really- or even more in general, like what, 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 kind of game advi- what kind of game design advice would you give to people uh, out there who are wanting to make their own game, who are listening to this? Um, be patient. Be patient. Be stubborn. <laughs> um, play it a lot on both sides of the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, don't def- don't just defend it all the time. Oh, that's a good one. Right? Yeah. Um, even though it is hard because you've, you have put... Um, you're invested you're, in you're, it. Yeah, you're invested in it. You've put blood and sweat and tears into it, perhaps. You really love some particular idea. Mm-hmm. Um you can defend it, and you should, because it's your idea, and, and if it's a good one, you should believe in it. But let other voices um, be wise when they are, yeah. um, and be willing to to um, change things, tweak mm-hmm. things, or even dump things when when they're not meeting other people's expectation. Because if they're not meeting others, they're not going to meet your customers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that, no, that's a good point. I mean, a lot of people do. Um, they shut themselves out, and like, and we we've had episodes and a lot of discussion on Game Designers Workshop about feedback, and that that is kind of a tricky thing to like, what is useful feedback and what isn't. But like, 
if you shut yourself off, you can't get the good feedback, which, which you need. You absolutely do need. So that that's a really good point. This has um, been a new experience for me because when I was writing Blue Planet, it wasn't – I mean, it might have been possible, but mm-hmm. it wasn't convenient to make distribution to playtesting groups right. or collect data from playtesting groups. We didn't have the tools available now. Yeah, the tools just weren't available. Um, you know, you're still putting stamps on envelopes. Right? <laughs> um and so um, all the playtesting we did was in-house. Yeah. And there was you know, a, a moment where we were waiting for the shoe to drop after it was published. Someone go, oh, look, you guys forgot this. Oh, yeah. Luckily, it didn't seem to really happen. Yeah. Um, but it's been different with Upwind. I've been actually – I cracked the seal a few months ago and sent it out to some distribution lists that I'm still part of. And there's a few people that are playing it. You guys yeah. graciously played it. Um, and it's just been really fun and interesting and a little bit um, – I haven't been humiliated yet, but a little bit humbling to see, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. Yeah. That's a good idea. I'll do that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing it uh, come out sooner or later. Um, what well, do you, maybe. If it, if it, it gets maybe. There. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, we'll yeah. See. Like we'll I said, see. I'm still in the middle it's of it. It's a work in progress. Still in the, still in the middle of it. Um, so, yeah, what, so you don't have any definitive plans yet, uh, but – what are you do you want to talk about what what you're thinking about for it in the future or like because uh, I know you mentioned to me Kickstarter right yeah I mean I guess I'm being a little more coy than I should be I, <laughs> I'm planning on producing it yeah um, at this point it, it makes perfect sense that it should be through Kickstarter yeah um, I don't anticipate it being um, everyone's cup of gaming tea no um, but but it um I would like to share it with those people that would be interested in it. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a, a good way to do that. Um, I don't, it's going to be a self contained project, at least at this point, mm-hmm. barring a few stretch goals that we have planned. Um, it's not going to be a game line. There's no intention for it to go on and on. Um, in right. fact, you, the idea is that it'll be a, a self contained project. I've even toyed with the idea of making it a Kickstarter exclusive. Like you don't get it through Kickstarter. You're not going to get it. Um, probably not going that way. Right. But um, it because would, the print-on-demand thing, you leave right, on drive through. It would be it would be a, a drive-through thing that you could continue to get. But if you want the the book that we produced, yeah, um, with what I would like to do, you know, full color, hard mm-hmm. hardback, well, limited run, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Then you'd have to go through Kickstarter sure. to get that. Um, um, and so I'm I'm anticipating um, finalizing the the content, uh, art and layout through the course of the summer, and the Kickstarter probably. If this is the way we go, then then Kickstarter probably at the beginning of next year. Okay. Um, and and then see what happens after that. Cool. Uh, and that's 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 the um, so in terms of like other possible stretch goals or anything like that, you're still that's still all, all up in the air. Like, uh, well, I've I've, yeah. I've actually structured um, the Kickstarter. I've got okay. all the elements um, um, and, and I've been drafting it up. Uh, the book is is targeted for about eighty thousand words, full color, hardcover. Um, and then um, the stretch goals include um, – I'm trying to think of what order I put them in. Um, some of the basic ones, I think, uh, more art. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a common one. Yeah. Um, I, I think we may make the hardcover a stretch goal. Um, That's reasonable. Yeah. Especially um, if you're doing an offset run. I mean. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I think we've got um, – uh, a campaign, like a PDF campaign, mm-hmm. um, a PDF alt setting that um, I've kind of been toying with again in the back of my head, just been percolating. 
Um, and then uh, uh, since it's a playing card based game, we thought it would be neat. There are these features in the game called relics that all the characters have. We thought it would be neat to have a deck of cards that featured those relics. Um, and that could be used in play, but then right. also they would be sort of a source. It would be a source deck of sorts that could be <laughs> used um, w- while also being a deck of cards that could be played with. Mm-hmm. Um, done by the same artist that is illustrating the book. Um, yeah, I'll, and I'll give a shout out to him. James Stowe uh, is uh, an artist uh, and game designer himself who is probably best known for uh, Sidekick Quests, this is an online comic okay. um, about. Uh, it, uh, role-playing characters in a sort of meta story. It's really an introduction for young young children to the hobby of role-playing. Neat. Um, and he's actually about to launch a Kickstarter for um, the role-playing game that supplements the, the online. Oh, cool. Well, I, I will uh, try to link to that. Yeah, sidekick. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty cool. Um, have you learned any... Uh, I mean, since you've, you've done fulfillment distribution and all that other stuff mm-hmm. back in the... Uh, the golden the era of the nineties, yeah, 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 the days of stamps, uh, to the days of Kickstarter. Uh, have you learned anything new? Are there are there any lessons? Uh, I'm learning advice? it now because, oh, like I said, <laughs> I, 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 um, I had been out of it for for probably ten years, uh, and then coming back into it. I mean, I, I teach high school, so yeah. I I have lucked out in that being with teenagers every day, um, and not only that, I, I work at a boarding school, so I actually live with right. teenagers around the clock. Um, their use of technology has forced me to sort of stay a little bit, a little bit current anyway, considering right. my generation. Um, and so it wasn't a, a cold start, but um, I've never done any crowdfunding before. Um, I've never done any print-on-demand before. I'm, I'm having to become a user of Facebook to support a Biohazard Games <laughs> Facebook page. Um, and so, yes, I'm learning. I haven't learned anything yet. I'm still learning. Um, are there any questions that you are really, or are th- challenges you can see ahead that you think are going to be particularly? Um, I think if I were going, if I really was counting on selling thousands of copies and maintaining a line, I think yeah. there would be a lot more challenges and I have a lot more concerns. And I, sure. and I can, I, I was smiling to myself listening to Caleb talk about um, developing red markets. Yeah. Um, because the things he was describing were things I felt in the Blue Planet days, this uncertainty about how it was going to be received and how well it would do. Um, and I just remember those feelings. At this point, um, the goal for Upwind is just to, to share it. And if I can share it at a small level, great. If I can share it at a larger level, that would be great too. So I'm not, I don't have any questions that, that worry me. I have a, a lot um, about how best to use. Uh, Kickstarter and how best to promote. Okay. And in fact, the fact that I'm here Im- imposing on your time <laughs> and basically just sent you an yeah. email said, "Hey, can I come talk on yeah, your yeah. show?" Yeah. Uh, that that's sort of one of my first and a little bit scary steps for me to step out and just say, "Hey, yeah. you don't know me, but um, this is social media, and I and I guess this is how people do this. <laughs> it is. Um, <laughs> can we can we talk games? Yeah. So. Um. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is it is a kind of a brave new world out there uh, in a lot of ways. But, I mean, it comes down to people just, you know, uh, finding out about games and playing them and seeing seeing what they're like um, and then really, really connecting to them. Um, I I mean, yeah, I look for, I'm looking forward to the um, – to Q. And um, you mentioned, you know, about sharing it. Do you think you're going to have a Creative Commons or an uh, open game license? I'd love to. Okay. Um, I mean, at the very least, I can promise this is what's going to happen. Okay. If if the game, 
if we decide not to do a Kickstarter or, for example, the Kickstarter doesn't make, right. I've already commissioned the art. I've already written the book. It needs to be laid out. needs to be edited. Playtesting needs to be finished. Um, but the book is essentially done. Um, I, there won't be as much art. Right. Right. Um, but it will be published. And at the very least, it will be shared for free on our website. Okay. Um, and people can just download it and play it if they want to. Okay. Um, Oh, well, I mean like a Creative Commons license so people can make right. their own Right. Well, version. that's that's the yeah. first step, right? Okay. It's like I'm I'm going to give it away if, okay. if nothing else. But um, I would very much like to be part of the – I don't know much about it. Okay. And it was just sort of beginning when I was – when I was working on, um, it's still yeah, yeah. relatively new. Well, uh, yeah. I would I would be I would really like to be part of that. Okay, I think it'd be fun to share not just the mechanics, but see what other people can do with it. Yeah, that's always. I mean, that's what games are about, right? Is yeah. see what other people do with these cool ideas. Yeah, collaboration. Yeah. yeah, and and if I can give people some some tools like some mechanics or something to do something new with, that'd be great. Yeah, we've uh, had a few people license the um, Blue Planet mechanics, the second edition mechanics. Um, to do various things with, um, and that's been easy and fun, and I'd be happy to do do that kind of thing. Cool. Um, on a on any kind of in 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 whatever was sort of the freest, most open sort of way that. Could happen. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, well, we have um, we'll have some playtests recorded of uh, Upwind, and we'll be posting them sooner or later <laughs> on the queue. And uh, as we get closer to the Kickstarter, we'll probably have you back on uh, over Skype or Google Great. Hangouts or whatever uh, to talk again so you can, like, what an update, like what kind of sure. lessons you have learned about yeah, Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, any final thoughts? Uh, uh, I just want to thank you guys here at RPPR. I love listening to the podcast. Um, I, I uh, spent a lot of time laughing. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I really appreciate you sharing, sharing your uh, bandwidth to talk about Oh, Biohazard and Upwind. Yeah, no, uh, thank you. All right. Uh, we'll talk to you guys next time.